Hello and welcome to the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Data, analytics, big data, data science, machine learning, customer insight, behavioral science, blockchain, data ops, data engineering, agile working, phew, too many terms, too many things to think about. Do you as a leader need somewhere to turn, to hear what other leaders are doing, to hear what really makes a difference in your business? Welcome. The Customer Insight Leader Podcast is here for you. Each episode, we'll be interviewing a different leader in the fields of customer insight, data, and analytics to hear what they really do, what really makes a difference. So settle down, get that cup of coffee, and enjoy the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Customer Insight Leader Podcast, a place to hear from today's leaders in the fields of customer insight, data, and analytics. I'm your host, Paul Lockling, and with me today is Stuart Hayes. Stuart is head of data and analytics for OSN in Dubai, the region's leading entertainment business. And prior to that role, Stuart's helped many businesses as either a consultant or a data leader. He's worked for businesses as diverse as the Financial Times, Sky Betting, Interactive Investor, and Property Finder, amongst many others. Stuart describes himself as having been working with dirty data since 1995, but still loving data and the possibilities it holds. So that's good. Uh, He also loves talking about communicating data in creative ways. So that bodes well for our conversation today. Welcome, Stuart. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the invite. Looking forward to this. Great. Me me too. Yeah, good to have, have you with us, Stuart. One other thing I'm sure we'll touch on is that Stuart's traveled extensively holding data leadership roles, as I mentioned, all over the world. So it'd be interesting to explore that that amount of travel too. But let's start, as we normally do, with hearing Stuart's backstory in his own words. So Stuart, could you tell us a bit more about your career story and how you got into the world of data and analytics? Sure, sure thing. So I'll try and compress 25 years into five five or 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> good good luck, my man. <laughs> let's start at the beginning. So, yeah, a bit, bit, bit of a dinosaur, uh, several thousand kilometres on the clock. Uh, but I started <laughs> in the 90s with, with a Leeds University spin-out company called GMAP. Um, so that was kind of pre-internet, pre, um, pre, pre-Google Maps uh, back in the old days. Um, and, and GMAP was really innovative at the time, very much at the bleeding edge. So GMAP was geographical modeling and planning. And, and GMAP was in the business of helping high street retailers or anybody with a physical branch network, essentially, get their network configuration and their network strategy right. So, for example, if you were Ford Motor Company, GMAP would harvest all of the DVLA registration data and sales information and all of the dealer location data and then put that into a very sophisticated gravity model and help you as Ford decide, do I need you know one dealership in Birmingham or maybe two and how big should they be? Uh, and what kind of vehicles should they stock? So that was my first job and very, very fortunate, very much at the cutting edge and, and also quite academic, um, actually based on campus. So really lucky to work with some super, super smart people. Most most people there you know, had, had at least a master's, if not a PhD. Mm. So that was a great, great way to cut my teeth, I think, in the world of data and, and, and really use data to solve real business problems, you know, not just mm. theoretical issues but actual tangible business problems mm. so it's been team up for <clears throat> about five years and kind of split my time in two so three years I was building the system and then for the, the latter half 
I was actually using the system. So I was working on behalf of GMAP at, at Ford Motor Company, the European HQ, helping, um, you know, helping Ford Motor Company figure out what should our dealer representation be in Cairo, for instance, or mm. in Algeria. Um, so super fascinating. And again, so it kind of really sparked my love of all things spatial. Um, I'm a geographer at heart and once a geographer, always a geographer, I guess. <laughs> yes. So that was that was kind of the front part of my career, um, and then I was lucky enough to go travelling for a year, uh, and then I came back and was very very fortunate to get a role with the post office, heading up their location planning team. Hmm. Um, this was at times two thousand and two, when when the post office was the the largest retail network in Europe, so thirty seven thousand branches, I think. And also at a time when, when the government was kind of consolidating business and putting business out of the physical post office into digital channels. So, you know, unfortunately, however you looked at it, the, the network was saturated and there were too many branches for, for the level of demand. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of learning, you know, building on my knowledge of GMAP, again, helping the post office figure out, okay, run multiple what-if scenarios so you know if I, if I close a post office in this locale you know what's the consequence how far will people have to travel and how much of revenue will stay in the network and it was a, a super interesting problem because it was a kind of a, a trade-off between commercial and social objectives mm-hmm. so obviously trying to retain as much sales revenue in the network um, and also trying to make the network as efficient as possible. So it's kind of competing objectives, which was very interesting. Um, that was kind of the front half of my time at the post office, which was five years. In the second half, um, post office realized that you know, it wouldn't be able to sustain itself through the physical network alone. So kind of reinvented itself as an online brand and moved into telephony and travel insurance and home insurance, pet insurance, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And I kind of got, as the, the nominal data guy, I kind of got involved uh, or asked to become involved in, a, in the creation of a single customer view project. Mm-hmm. So post office obviously wanted to, to take all of this data from people in branch and, and bring it all together and start to understand, you know, people's product holdings and, and household, um, you know, how much business do we have with that particular household or in that particular mm-hmm. catchment area post office. So that was really cool. I learned about survivorship in terms of golden records and fuzzy matching mm-hmm. and, you know, how to bring together Stuart Hayes with S. Hayes, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the same person, that kind of deterministic matching. Um, and then I <clears throat> we used that data to build what I guess you could call data science now, but back in the day was probably data mining or or predictive modeling. So using a tool called Angos, which I loved. Oh, yes very visual and a real visual thinker mm. so building typically decision trees trying to predict somebody's likelihood to cross sell from foreign exchange into travel insurance for example mm. or somebody's likelihood to renew on our home telephony products so again look at lots of data wrangling really focus on this rich customer data and you know then try and drive some some commercial outcomes for the post office um Second of the front half of my career, like 10 years or so, very spatial, um, very kind of demographic oriented. Uh, and then after the post office, I went to the Financial Times. Um, really interesting period. 
you know, just kind of experimenting with the paywall, getting all of it very rich clickstream data. You know, and we could really begin to see in, in very rich detail who was reading what kind of articles yeah. uh, and what kind of products and services they were subscribed to and their level of interaction with all of those. <clears throat> so again, quite quite a similar story, kind of fusing all of this data together, you know, building some models to predict some of these likelihoods renew or upsell or, 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 or remain with us, in fact. Um, and then kind of deploying that through, I guess, fairly old school methods, you might say now, but typically through database marketing. So yep. email primarily. Um, and so quite quite a kind of common strand runs through, I guess, that, that decade. Um, after the FT, I went to work for the world's second largest publisher, Pearson being the world's largest publisher and owner of the Financial Times um, in, in Cincinnati. And that was a bit of a pivot for me. My, my role really was to stand up and, and build a, a market research capability. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and my background really had been in, let's call it big data. So, you know, yeah. rich, voluminous clickstream data, um, but a real pivot to what I would call small data. So, you know, sometimes we were doing ethnographies or diary studies with one person. We were, you know, tracking yeah. their habits behaviors throughout the day. Um, so that was a great learning experience for me to kind of get, you know, get both sides of the coin. You know, we've got this really rich behavioral data, which is kind of a dark and anonymous. Mm. And then we've got this mm. really detailed, really colorful data about a specific individual. Um, and we used to joke, we used to we used to um, use the Spice Girls analogy for those who are old enough, but <laughs> from a market research point of view, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. So, <laughs> Kind of thinking about Henry Ford's classic, you know, and people said a faster horse rather than a car. So yeah. really, you know, really kind of structuring the the research and getting to the the essence of the need of the customer. Mm. And then another Spice Girls classic, when two become one. So you know, trying to use this very very detailed individual data with this very uh, rich kind of large scale clickstream data, and then you know, modeling down. So essentially, the technique I've learned from GMAP, so modeling down this small data onto the big data to try and generalize and create personas mm. and then bring mm. the customer to life. Mm. <clears throat> um, and then, like the Financial Times, we instrumented the platforms, began capturing you know, really rich behavioral data uh, and doing smart stuff with that. Um, I'll speed up a little bit. Then I went into iGaming, <clears throat> so I, I moved to Malta, just south of Italy in the Med. Uh, mm, spent about, nice. about three years there, and then uh, just over a year with Sky Betting and Gaming. Um, and then I pivoted once again. Um, I went to Dubai, so my first role was with Property Finder, and it's quite an interesting story how it happened. I actually kind of was approached by uh, one of my former colleagues at the Financial Times, who, who was a great data, junior data scientist back in the day, mm-hmm. and had now established a, a data science capability at Property Finder, uh, and she wanted me to, to to come back and help her kind of maybe look at things with more of an engineer, a rigorous engineering lens. So mm-hmm. you know, data, data, you know, think about data quality and data governance and yeah. and data and those sorts of things which you know not necessarily front of mind for a data scientist who's just interested in building a you know single singular use case yeah um and i've been in dubai three years been lucky enough to spend <clears throat> 18 months with property finder in real estate uh then i worked with a company called golden scent who are in e-commerce so largest perfume and, and beauty product retailer in the region uh, and latterly i've been with osn um <clears throat> osn are analogous to sky somewhat so you know a heritage of a of a satellite broadcaster 
but oh. trying to reinvent itself as, as really as a Netflix. So we're a subscription video on demand mm-hmm. play. You know, you can sign up for Net, uh, for OSN for 35 dirhams a month and watch whatever you like pretty much. So I'm super excited about this opportunity because we've got this tremendously rich data, which is exactly the same as Netflix. Um, and I think everybody looks up to Netflix and what they've done with data. And I genuinely feel we've got tremendous opportunity to do some really cool stuff with the data we have at OSN. Brilliant. Thank you, Stuart. Well, well, well done for getting through so many so many years of experience in, in that time. I'm just going to pick up on, and, and I guess this is partly because my first degree was in meteorology and oceanography and astronomy, so there's a, there's a geographer at heart there to some extent as well. Um, that comment about the real location theme in, in the first half of your career, is that something you see as, as really in the past now, or has that still continued to be a lens with which you think about more recent problems. Does does location still matter? I guess I'm asking. Uh, great question, Paul. And um, you know, one of the first things I'll typically do with a data set is is try and map it, or at least sort it into you know postcodes or whatever the the, mm. the geography is to to try and see is there any any spatial kind of thing going on. And I think you know, wherever I've worked, there is there's always something spatial going on in the data and they're very much the same at golden center for example you know we, we were we were great at selling into some parts of saudi and not so great at selling into other parts of saudi um you know it's the same with osn there are clear regional differences mm. in how people consume content and the kind of content they like so mm. i you know probably biased but i would also say i would always say there's always some element of geography in the mix somewhere mm. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. I, and, and I agree with you. Something does get overlooked a bit, I think, some, sometimes these days. I, I know uh, one of our guest bloggers who's frequent on Customer Insight Leader blog, Tony Bubia, has, uh, has blogged a few times about the importance of location still and thinking about that from an insight perspective. I, I don't want to walk past, though, the fact that compared to a lot of guests I've had on this podcast, and, and a number have worked overseas for a few years and, and learned from that, you really have travelled. You've, you've worked in a, in a number of different countries and really almost right across the world. Um, so, so let's let's dig in a bit to that that wanderlust, if you like. Do you think travelling has actually helped you develop as a data leader? And if so, how has it been useful? I think it has absolutely. Um, I think I've really come to appreciate um, different cultures and different perspectives and different mm. different mindsets. Um, and different ways that different people process information. Um, and I might, I might argue that it's not necessarily cultural, but perhaps a personality type. So mm. there are certain people like very rich tabular data. You know, they're very quantitative in nature. You know, certain people like myself are very visual, you know, and would love a chart. Mm. And other people, you know, uh, get more engaged through storytelling and coming on a journey. So I think you'll find those personality types and kind of... Um, ways of processing information anywhere in the world um, I, I don't think it's a cultural thing I think if you think it's a kind of cerebral thing how, how you're wired as an individual um, the Betson there were 37 nationalities obviously the UAE is very very multicultural um, and I think it's all about it's all about positioning things in a way that will be well received by the audience and knowing your audience that makes sense I, I know I mentioned in the beginning you've got this passion for communicating data in creative ways do you always do the research and thus really know your audience and you tailor it for them? Or given what you've just said, Stuart, do you tend to take an approach of there might be some of this type in the audience, some of that type in the audience, so I'm going to communicate in more multimedia ways? Or which approach is it? Really tailored or 
aim to work for a variety of those personality types? Yeah, I, I try to tailor it. I mean, it's difficult if you have a large audience, obviously, mm. they're, they're more likely to be represented by different personality types in there. But, you know, sure. if it's an executive audience, for example, right, let's kind of cut to the chase. Let's let's get the numbers on the first line. And, you know, what does this mean and what's the recommendation? Sure. If, it, if it's more of a, you know, a discussion around findings with your own data team, then, you know, jump into the detail and into the technical stuff. But I think most people tend to get kind of hung up and focused on the methodology, which yeah. for a lot of people is irrelevant. They just want, you know, what does this mean for me? And mm. what should I what should I do as a result? They're not really interested if you've used a neural net or a random forest or whatever it is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They, they want to know how this information can help them be more effective in their role. That, that, that makes good sense and com- completely agree, Stuart. You, you started your career with what I guess now would be called a startup. Um, surrounded by, by the sounds of it, people with masters and number of them PhDs, as you mentioned. Looking back, I wonder how you feel that helped kickstart your career. What ways that gave you a leg up right from the beginning? Yeah, I'm just trying to rewind the clock to the mid '90s, and it's, it's a very, very positive memory still. Um, perhaps most tinted spectacles, but nonetheless, I think because it was such a small company, maybe 30, 40 people, you you had to wear multiple hats, mm. um, you know, so you know, developing, presenting, help going on a sales uh, pitch, you know, it could be could be quite varied. So I think I, I learned to be versatile. Um, I think I developed a, a, a lifelong thirst for learning, mm. um, you know, a couple of masters along the way, uh, but working in an academic context, I think kind of crystallized that for me. Um, right. And I think it was very innovative and very bleeding edge. So, you know, this was the mid-90s, uh, before the internet. Uh, we were telling Ford very precisely how many how many vehicles they would sell. And it was quite revolutionary. Um, and it really led me to believe that I think you can solve a, a wide variety of business problems through data. Yes, yes, absolutely. And a nice reminder for us, so I guess uh, those of us who are longer in the tooth might say this, but how much pioneering analytical work and analytical thinking was going on even right back then, as you say, to to, to explain to people that that work was going on pre-internet is often a big surprise to people. The, a, a couple of, it prompts me, actually, a couple of times you've alluded to your use of more traditional statistical modelling and you were doing that kind of work long before the mass popularity of the term data science, I suppose, is seems to be all, in, all inclusive these days. I wonder what you make of the success of that term and whether you think it distracts from the the longer history of statistics and advanced analytics work in the kind of areas where you've worked, Stuart. Yeah, my my Dutch friends would say um, new wine in old skins, I think the saying is. So Hmm. my my own personal belief is there are three types of classical problem, classification, regression, or forecasting prediction. Mm. Uh, and those algorithms have been around since, you know, the 50s, 60s, you know, 50, 50 plus years. Um, so I, I think it's part of the kind of the Gartner hype cycle where, you know, we get this trough of disillusionment, which kind of follows the, the peak of inflated expectations. Yeah. And just a bit of a buzzword, really. Um and I think it's a bit of a shame. And I also see lots of buzzwords around, you know, data warehousing and, you know, other data lake house, whatever it is, data mesh. Um, I, I think it's just marketing fluff, um, which detracts, as you say, from from the great work that lots and lots of people are doing. That makes sense. I, I guess a, a devil's advocate might argue that there have been 
real growth under the label data science in more advanced modeling work. Um, we've obviously got greater use maybe than in the past uh, of neural networks, random forest, uh, a, a range of other algorithms um, to a lesser extent, actually. Some things I, I regret have been left behind, less use these days maybe of genetic algorithms and fuzzy logic, but that's someone who used to work in AI years ago. Do you think that there have actually, despite the hype, been genuine step forwards in data science so that we should celebrate? That's a great question. I, I do, but I think it's largely irrelevant to the vast, vast majority of us. Oh, um, right. if, if you're NASA and, and tracking a very you know, crazily big, crazily rich uh, telemetry data following you know, what's happening in the black hole, uh, 300 million light years away, then yeah, absolutely. Then you need all of this advanced uh, computing power and GPUs and you know um, algorithms tweaked to run on that. But I think for the majority of us trying to predict what a customer might do in a customer base of half a million maybe, yeah. that it's a little bit um, extreme. And I think you know, I've never really been challenged by performance. I think you can be smart about how you optimize things. You can always sample things. So what, what I think there have been um, great advances, I think it really depends on the use case. Yeah, that makes sense, Stuart. Um, out of the years then that you've worked on, helpfully, a diversity of businesses and the use cases they, they've needed for your analytics work, I wonder what, out of those three types of problems, what do you see most often? If, if most businesses out there don't need super advanced um, deep learning solutions, um, out of your kind of classification, forecasting, which, which ones are you seeing most often as the problems that businesses need? analytics to really help with? Uh, I, I maybe challenge you there, Paul, actually, and I think I'd, I'd just kind of wind back a little bit to where we were 10 minutes ago, perhaps. I think a lot of businesses don't even know how many customers they have, and a lot of businesses mm. can't look at a customer holistically mm. uh, because they, mm. they haven't got a single customer view or, or, mm. or, more lastly, they haven't invested in a CDP, which might help them to create a single customer view. Um, certainly my experience over the majority, if not all of my career, is the you know, Data quality um, is the number one challenge for every organization. You know, making sure that there is trust and faith and auditability in the numbers being produced. And that's very, very challenging. And I think until you've kind of mastered the basics and got a firm foundation and all your data is kind of in one place and well governed and well understood, mm. um, then you shouldn't be focused on those kind of higher order activities. I think you know it's essential to get your house in order. Now, I'm not saying you wait years until you've got a perfect data warehouse before you build the model. Obviously not. Right? That can be done as a kind of um, you know an accelerator project. But in my experience, most organisations are are struggling um, to have sufficient faith and trust in in the quality of data that they own. Yeah, good challenge, Stuart, and very fair. I would I would acknowledge that. From my experience, the majority of organisations are still actually struggling with the basics, which always seems a great amount of cognitive dissonance from what actually gets talked about there on uh, social media. You would think uh, most organisations were, were wrangling data for advanced projects, but I, I agree with you. OK, well, let's lock on to that term then, actually, because you've helpfully raised another very unfashionable term, I would say, single customer view, another thing that... Um, I think if you listened on social media, you would think it had gone, gone the way of the dinosaurs. Presumably, you're arguing that a single customer view is still as relevant as ever for organisations. 100%. And, you know, the impacts us today at OSN, 
you know, a customer can have a satellite subscription and also be watching um, streaming video on demand. Mm. Um, but they may be in two systems and we may not understand that. Uh, and we may be speaking to them about the wrong product or the wrong offer. Mm. For mm. example, if we're looking at their, 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 their video on demand data in a different system and we haven't managed to merge that with the traditional broadcasting data, mm. uh, we could be recommending that they, you know, they take an add-on for video on demand, which they already have. Yeah. And I always, I always kind of try to rationalize this. I mean, how, how would you feel if you got um, a credit card offer, a loan offer, a mortgage offer, all landing on your doormat on the same day from the bank? I mean, it's yeah. just lousy. Um, and the reason that doesn't happen is because they've spent time to try and to try and crack this stuff, to try and bring those different systems of data together and create this kind of unifying customer record. Yeah, uh, uh, agreed, agreed. Um, although <laughs> I'd, I'd acknowledge from some of my career background, they don't always get it right. But you're, you're right, there's certainly the background work goes into... It's not easy. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's not easy indeed. Uh, looking back then, maybe on, on, on both our kind of histories, um, I, like you, have got the, um, got the battle scars from actually successfully uh, developing and deploying a data warehouse. I guess if I look back at mistakes in the past as well, to be, to be fair to a more modern audience... There was sometimes the danger of trying to work toward, as you alluded, that ideal nirvana of the perfectly complete data warehouse, what became data graveyards uh, all too often. Um, and maybe that didn't advance either. Do you think there are things that have changed that mean we can take a different approach to a pragmatic single customer view these days? Uh, maybe wouldn't focus on single customer view. Um, I think mm. they have. Um, some great advances in, in data warehousing, let's call it. I mean, the concept of a data lake, for example, you know, you can just dump your data in and get to work straight away. Whereas mm -hmm. previously, you know, you might have had to, you know, where, warehouse that data in a staging layer and wait for weeks or months before you could access it. So mm -hmm. I think that's really accelerated time to market. Um, I think kind of the whole agile mindset has really made a difference. So mm -hmm. maybe not maybe it's not a technology um, advancement, but a, an advancement in thinking about agile and you know, how, how do we deliver value quickly in, in small increments and iteratively. And I think you know, gone are the days of waterfall where give me all your requirements and I'll come back in six months with what I thought you were asking for. Um, mm. I guess I'd encourage people to think more about, you know, how can I deliver something in a week or two that doesn't need to be perfect in no way will it be the finished product but it'll be something to show people and get feedback from yeah that's a, that's a really really good point and I, I think um i've seen a lot of data and analytics teams recognize the potential value of agile working and trying to mimic the way that's worked within software development teams but yep. sometimes struggling I, I wonder what you've seen that you think helps make agile working successful for the types of type of teams you've led as well data and analytics teams yeah i think skybet was probably the, the pinnacle of this so you know, a great software oriented organization um you know builds its own apps um, has, has great software development capability um mm. but kind of struggled with overlaying that paradigm on data i think data is just subtly different um for a number of, of reasons but to answer your question really i think it's about i think 
not just agile, but success in data is about being business focused and business centric and having strong relationships with your internal customers uh, and stakeholders and essentially being being a partner rather than a service organization. So, you know, meeting them and understanding their needs and understanding what keeps them up at night and understanding what makes them successful and then making sure that, you know, whatever you're doing is aligned with those. Yes, always timely, sensible advice. And I, I certainly agree that pays dividends, Stuart. Okay, let's let's follow one of those pivots that you mentioned, I guess, as, as you talk through your career with us. Like me, you, you've also made the move to leading a market research team, having had a, a data analytics background. I wonder what you learned from that transition and how you think your different perspective from the world of data and analytics actually helped the market research team to develop as well as you. Yeah, no, no more spy schools, fortunately, Paul. Ah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I learned tons, so um, it was a little bit left field for me, um, mm. and I learned an awful lot, particularly around discrete choice modeling, which, which is how you kind of um, synthesize a bunch of options for a product. So, mm. most famously, generalized with you know business class seats. Would you pay nine hundred dollars and get a five star meal and premier champagne, or would you rather pay seven hundred and you know a snack and some sparkling wine? So we we did a lot of that work to simulate. Um, you know, instead of the textbook, did students want to pay $300 for a 500-page textbook or did they want to pay 99 bucks for a magazine kind of equivalent and then go online to do their homework? So lots and lots of simulations, which really helped us um, build products that students wanted rather than products that we thought students wanted or products that we ourselves wanted to build. So I learned an awful lot there. And, and back to, you know, small data. So you know, ethnographies and diary studies, you know, understanding somebody's workflow, I think is super important. Now, what do they do before they engage with your product? And then what do they do when they're engaging in your product? And then what do they do after? So kind of follow this this timeline of how they're engaging with your product. You get some very, very rich and very surprising insight from those kind of, uh, you know, very rich qualitative approaches. So that's what I learned. I think the the power of qual and the power of one, let's say. Um, And and the other answer is, you know, like I say, I think I managed to bring the the fusion aspect. So let's take this small data and let's generalize it and let's try and model it out onto this base of clickstream data. and in this particular example, generate some personas, right? So here's a here's a college kid with a certain profile and a certain need using our product in a particular way. And here's another persona with a very different need and a very different level of engagement mm. with the product. Um, you know, I, I thought that was a you know, tremendously sexful, successful approach to bring together that individualistic, very detailed diary study information mm. or ethnography. I mean, literally following somebody around campus, yeah. and noting down what they're doing with this kind of, uh, as I said before, kind of dark, semi, semi-anonymous, very rich clickstream data. I think if you can bring um, those two together, then some some really cool things can happen. Yeah, completely agree. One one of the um, pieces of work I most enjoyed during my career was the successful overlay of an attitudinally based segmentation onto a database so that we could operationally deploy it and and target people. But it's it's not easy work. Um, And there's often uh, assumptions and statistical sophistication in, in, in achieving that. I wonder if you've got any tips from your achievement of doing it as to how people can successfully take learning from the qual world if we we call it that um even if you've got some some 
quant overlay as well um, into overlaying on databases and that kind of deployment? The thing I would kind of recall is I think it's all about weightings and having a, a representative you know, profile of the population. So in our research sample, maybe we were, you know, we were biased towards females for whatever reason. And then in, in the actual base, uh, the base was biased towards males. So how, how do you account for those variances between the sample and the population? Typically it's through weighting and making it more representative. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would also go back to just being a partner of the business. Right? There's an end user and a consumer for this information. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you make it resonate for them? It's not necessarily about you know the, the fit or whatever. It's mm. about just what does this mean for you? You know, does it resonate? Can you can you engage with this market research? Does it make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. No, I like that, Stuart, and I think you're absolutely right to call us back to stakeholder relationships, pragmatism, and the commercial impact of of what will actually help a business take action. So, so thank you for that. And just back to your mm. previous question, what I learned from, from Skybet was, you know, probably 8% of the value comes very quickly and you can spend an inordinate amount of time kind of chasing the long tail of, of yeah. incremental value. Um, but generally you get to something pretty good pretty quickly. Yes, good good nudge. Thank you for sharing that, Stuart. The uh, the power and the uh, benefit of the imperfect, as I've sometimes phrased it. So, yeah, well, well worth calling that out. Okay, th- th- thank you for everything you shared, Stuart. I-, I wonder, looking back now, reflecting on those kind of lessons, um, some of the audience for this podcast earlier in their career. So, if we've got people listening to this podcast who are maybe starting out as analysts, beginning to think how to develop and where they want, might want to go in their career. I wonder what advice you'd have for people starting out now. Where would you advise them to develop in order to really succeed and enjoy their careers? Uh, I, th- I think I would always kind of gravitate back to you know, try and try and apply your theoretical knowledge and theoretical thinking that maybe you're learning or have just recently finished at university mm. in a commercial context. You know, do a work placement, um, you know, do a secondment, do a project for a company, get some get some real data. Mm. Uh, you know, work on real raw material. So that would be my recommendation to try and to try and you know, kind of pivot from academia into into commercial reality and, and real data as, as soon as possible. I think for myself, um, being pragmatic uh, has really helped. So perfection is the enemy of the good, and, and yeah. done done is better than perfect. Uh, two mm. catchphrases that I've have held with me. Mm. Um, be you know, um, be flexible. I think there's an tremendous amount of opportunity in this space it's it's very sexy it's growing like crazy um there's tremendous opportunity in this space um but i do think it's also evolving and changing all the time so you know don't become a one-trick pony uh, mm. refresh your skills um develop a, a love for learning and and challenge yourself challenge yourself to learn something new or refresh a skill uh, at a regular interval because there's so much to learn um the more i know the more i realize i don't know um yeah. you know, 20 years in there's still a lot a lot to learn in this space which is fascinating brilliant brilliant no that's a great encouragement Stuart, and heartily echo that I, I wonder would you be encouraging those people to think about working internationally do you think that's something that people starting off now should think of doing to gain some of the benefits that you mentioned i think it's i think it's horses for courses i think it depends if you're 
brave enough and you know you have you have uh, the right conditions to do so i mean i was very fortunate that when i moved i had my family with me so i had you know i, I had support i had somebody there at the end of the day mm. uh, when i left the office i think mm. you know if you're 21 22 and, and moving countries it can be quite daunting so mm. i think it, mm. it depends depends you know on the individual are, are you ready um and you know what's your mindset yes okay very wise advice that's great Thanks for that, Stuart. And thanks for your time today. It's been, as I thought it would be, a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks again for the invite, Paul. Um, I really enjoyed the chat. and hope people can take uh, some, some useful insights away from it. I, I'm, I'm sure they can. And, and thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope you found that helpful and continue to listen to the Customer Insight Leader podcast. More great interviews coming up. And each week, there's also fresh content on our blog, customerinsightleader, all one word, dot com. So you might want to check that out too. Before then, thanks again, everyone, for your time. Have a great week. Perhaps you can reflect on how you might develop and grow as a leader or an analyst from considering a role somewhere very different, whether that's traveling like Stuart did or a very different sector or interesting different problems. Bye for now.